0: You're on, I'm one of your hosts.
1: I'm Bethan.
2: And I'm Jacob.
0: And today we are going to be talking about Season 7. So, I think season, the thing about Season 7 is it's kind of, it's one of the big sort of changing or turning points in Doctor Who history. I would say like really second only to, in the course of the show, to 2005, to Series 1, uh, in terms of how much the whole structure of the show changes insofar as obviously we've got a new doctor and we'll get on to him in a minute um we've got uh, a whole new kind of regular cast so there's a complete change from the people who appeared in the war games for for plot reasons and also obviously off camera there's just there's no continuity from the people who were in the last uh trident episodes um, there's a change in the number of episodes as well and uh, goes drastically down, in fact, from 41 to 26 per year um, for practical reasons, really, um, which also allows for a little bit more flexibility in terms of the production schedule. Most obviously, I suppose, um, visually, the series is now in colour and there's also a transition to, um, to working with film more, more so than before. Um, so, again, it looks very, very different, uh, which we'll kind of uh, get into a little bit as we go on, I think. And then behind the camera, uh, Barry Letts takes over as producer after um, Spearhead from Space. So, we get the beginning of the, the Letts Sticks creative team, which will then kind of dovetail with the Pertwee era. Um, almost perfectly, in fact, given that they go from Pertwee's second episode up until Tom Baker's first episode. Apart from that, um, we get the introduction of... Actually, in the first two stories of this season, we get the introduction of a couple of fan-favorite monsters, in terms of the Autons and the Silurians, um, who will make reappearances, both make reappearances to varying degrees and occasionally to varying degrees of success, both in the classic series and in the new series. Aside from that, then, one other thing you have to say about this season is that it's... It, it's one that tends to do very very well among fans in terms of polls i mean topically at the moment <laughs> just a few days ago at the time of recording uh, doctor who magazine had their world cup of the third doctor in which one of the stories from this uh, season came out on top and because i'm going to forget by the time we get to it it was inferno <laughs> uh, i'm not gonna like keep that tension going <laughs> Um, But every story in this is to some extent regarded as, if not a classic, reasonably well regarded. There's a kind of there's a quality or at least a consistency um, across this season, which is kind of interesting to identify or to investigate in its own uh, on its own merits, really, so to speak. So to move on to the kind of the big elements that are introduced in this season, the first one, the most obvious one is John Pertwee himself the third Doctor the three of us are would it be fair to say are particularly big kind of um, third Doctor fans
1: hell yes
0: (laughs) yes I think um, think we're all all fans of the Pert as I've never called him before (laughs) and will never call him again Uh, (laughs) I love it (laughs) So, like, um, what can we say about Pertwee, both in this in this season and more generally? I suppose.
1: I think he's got a good balance between um, being amusing and being serious. I think he can do the two modes very well hmm. and sort of everything in between. I I know I'm aware of some of the criticisms of the Third Doctor, but I really like him. I don't think his relationship with Unit is necessarily too cosy or anything, mm-hmm. but um, obviously opinions on him and on Unit are going to vary.
0: Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, I mean, in terms of what you say about him mixing um, sort of comedy and drama, should we say, um, he was previously known as specifically as a comedy actor and especially as kind of a voice actor and uh, he was known for radio work. So it's interesting that he kind of he he his is really not considered one of the more comedic takes on the role at all mm. Mm. um and even though arguably there are aspects of that kind of that comedy training in there in the kind of, at times at least it's it's something that like he really kind of eschews for the most part
1: I think it's kind of um he, he also kind of is quite good at bringing out the comedic potential of other actors if that makes sense because mm. I think the the rapport that he has with some of the cast members including like Nicholas Courtney as the brigadier and stuff mm. is what brings a lot of the humour to the episodes which isn't necessarily him like Pertwee on his own, it's him mm. working with other people and he's not necessarily the most ridiculous person in all of those scenarios, mm. although you know, <laughs> sometimes
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean it's probably worth kind of touching on some of the criticisms that you mentioned that exist of the Third Doctor. And um, certainly, there was a strain, uh, there was a strain in Doctor Who fandom around the nineties, anyway, uh, which I think has received a little bit since. Which painted the Third Doctor as a very kind of authoritarian figure, as not only in terms of the relationship with UNIT, the kind of the military setting, but also. Um, as being quite high-handed and kind of imperious in his dealings with people, as kind of being almost needing to be the centre of attention in some ways, and I I don't at all agree with most of that I must say. But like I don't know if you guys have any particular takes on it.
2: He's certainly a very confident doctor. Yeah. Um, and there is there is a touch of arrogance there. But that's not something that's new in the character necessarily. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, I mean, like Hartnell's Doctor is certainly extremely <laughs> yeah. arrogant. I mean, the first episode, he, he, you know, Ian asks him about, you know, basically how the, the Tardis is engineered or something like that, and he says, uh, "You wouldn't understand." You know, he said, "I knew you wouldn't." <laughs> he just sort of, mm. He's just so so uh, dismissive of him, and it, and it runs it runs through later Doctors as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I don't I don't necessarily. See that as an issue. I wouldn't say it's overpowering. Um, for for that that kind of flaw, there's still uh, a lot of kind of virtuous points. I, th- I think I think I think the the good. I, I personally I like the the, the confidence of him um, because it sort of it brings out the drama more. One one sort of uh, issue I have if you have a, a doctor who's less confident. Uh, and we'll probably get onto this, like um, with someone like Peter Davison, um, is uh, I I think it somewhat devalues it can it can it can devalue the drama. Um, I think the good thing with Pertwee is he's always portrayed as in control, and so when he's mm. not in control, um, mm. it almost heightens the drama more. Um, you know, I mean, like take Planet of the Spiders when he mm. says that. Um, you know, when the when the, the great one says to him that that he's not accustomed to feeling fear, and he actually looks frightened, yeah. uh, and it's one of the very few times you ever see Pertwee's doctor look frightened. Mm.
0: Yeah, I th- I I agree with you on that. Um, I I we disagree on Peter Davison, yeah. but we'll get to that at some point. <laughs> um, and I think you're right that that arrogance is really baked into the character. Mm. And mm. I, I I do tend to wonder why it is that um, Pertwee's brand of it. Seems to wind people up more than say Tom Baker's, which it, mm. Tom Baker's very arrogant. Yeah. Um and I, in a way, I advisedly say Tom Baker as much as the Fourth Doctor. Mm. Yeah, I know. There's um, there's a a review that Paul Cornell did in sometime in the nineties of I think it was Terror of the Autons, where I know he refers to the Third Doctor as a Tory at some point, point, uh, in like in the, in the the way that like people do that make makes Tory sound like the worst kind of swear word. All
1: right, all right. I suppose you want to see my pass. Yes, well, I haven't got one. And I'm not going to tell you my name either. Now, you just tell Brigadier Richard stewart that I want to see him. Well, don't just stand there arguing with me, man. Get on with it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think something that's interesting about the Third Doctor, actually, and about the Third Doctor era, is there's a stock character that you get. It comes up in some of the stories that we'll be talking about today and also in later ones, of the kind of, the meddling civil servant mm. who is mm. constantly kind of mm. trying to bring things to a halt, trying to kind of pull rank, and the third doctor just continually has none of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. which is kind of, in a way that there's that's not necessarily anti-authoritarian because it's really it's you could argue um with some success I think that it's really just a different breed of authoritarianism, but at the same time um it's. I find it very hard to paint him as an establishment figure. Mm-hmm. Um when that, with that kind of thing going on. And actually I should say as well that uh, I mean I, I mentioned Paul Cornell he's since written third doctor comics in which I think he he does a very good job of reconciling his kind of his take on the third doctor with um a kind of positive vision of the character.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean I think it's a bit strange when that people would see him as so thoroughly establishment when a lot of the drama of, particularly the stories that we're looking at, in this episode, these episodes, is um, that he so often like comes into conflict with unit with, every, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. authority he's supposed to be under, mm-hmm. and so, maybe that's where the arrogance comes in. But I think it's difficult to see somebody as both like arrogant and a sort of stooge of the establishment in some ways, mm. like they're mm. not necessarily traits that like reconcile that well. Mm. And I think that he kind of knows his value to unit and to everyone he encounters and mm. therefore knows that he should just do what he wants. Well I suppose again Mostly. as well, you
2: could you could argue that the that kind of tension again is is one of the foundations of the character. He he's he's both he's both rebellious in the sense that he you know he's the time lord who ran away, but he's also you could say like an 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 establishment figure in the sense that he is a time lord and, and the way in which the time lords kind of see themselves in the universe and the importance that they grant themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I guess this is a little bit different in the sense that the 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 criticism is about his adventures on Earth specifically and his relation to Eunuch, but I certainly think you could argue that, again, that tension is is always there, particularly, yeah. particularly after the Time Lords are introduced and mm-hmm. kind of fleshed out more and more. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that that tension actually is really interesting. That's something to keep an eye on, I think, when we come to episodes like The Deadly Assassin, mm-hmm. uh, or even something like um, Hellbent, I would say, um, where the the Doctor and the Time Lords are either in kind of um, indirect conflict or something a bit more kind of complicated than that, mm. as mm. in both of those episodes, really, actually.
1: Sign of attention when you're talking to me and call me sir! Ah.
0: I mean, we've, t- we've mentioned Unit a bunch of times already, so uh, I think we should probably talk about them properly. Um, the reason int- Unit get introduced is basically um, similar to the reason why the episode count got shortened, it's because part of the, a big part of the reason Troughton left is because there was so much pressure on him to carry this show, um, and it was such an intensive workload. So what Unit do is, by bringing in a whole new regular cast, it takes some of the pressure off um, the leading actor, which, again, is a, a strange thing to reconcile with the idea that uh, the third Doctor is one that everything kind of has to revolve around. Mm. But anyway... And, of course, it brings us a kind of a military setting, which some people have found quite troubling. Again, people who, who aren't particularly big fans of this era. And I, this one I kind of, I understand a bit more. But... Um, well, yeah, again, I don't know. How, how do you guys feel about that?
1: I mean, to be fair, if, if, like, Doctor Who, as it's being made now, suddenly went into, like, a full military completely military setting, for the most part, I would be confused and not too happy, I Mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. So there's partly, maybe some of it is the fact that I feel like I'm looking back on something... I don't know. I think that I can see why people are uneasy with it, but at the same time, I do like the unit casts. I really Mm -hmm. like the Mm Brigadier and um, Benton is great. Benton appearing. Benton
0: barely (laughs) appearing in this series, it must be said. (laughs) I treasured those
1: moments. (laughs) Um, We had to re record this episode, and in the previous recording, Jacob um, mentioned something about a letter that was (laughs) written.
2: Golden nugget of a fact. Um, Yeah. Yeah, apparently, Sergeant Benton was uh, given increased appearances um, after people writing in and saying they love Sergeant Benton, including. 500 women from a textile mill in Lancashire so
1: heroes
2: <laughs>
1: oh it's such a nice a nice a nice heartwarming fact <laughs> but yeah um, I think that part of the reason why they sort of get away with it is that the unit cast are all quite fun and I like them but I don't know I feel like they're kind of I mean, they are a military organisation, but they're kind of involved in, like, spooky alien stuff, mm-hmm. which kind of separates them a bit from any real military mm. context, I guess. The,
2: I think the other big complication with uh, UNIT is that it's always defined as an international force, and often it's put into conflict with the national military. Mm. So, like... Uh, if I think of like ambassadors so yeah. the the national the, the, the military of, of Britain are, are villains as such and you its the good force and similarly in the invasion of the in, yeah, invasion of the dinosaurs um, it's the same thing again it's it's mm, yeah the the authoritarian uh, group of, of the British military I assume that comes out of let's and uh, Terence Dix's sort of own own political philosophy because as far as I'm aware both of them are sort of like uh, internationalists. Yeah, so I think that's somewhat ameliorates the tension but at the same time you are still going around with guns shooting people. Um which is quite interesting for a UN force to be uh, to be doing. <laughs> I mean, in their defense, their guns
1: mostly don't work yeah. against the things yeah, yeah, they're yeah. trying to shoot. But um,
2: you know, that's not that's not so I don't I don't enjoy the unit era, and I find I find. I mean, like you said, I find, I also find the criticisms of it a little overstated to say the least.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I something that's going to be interesting to um to track as well is the variety of things units do in the course of, or, like, are tasked with doing (laughs) over the course of the Pertwee era, they, like, in this season, they're mostly kind of um, um, assigned to various scientific facilities where something big is happening. Mm. Um, But then they're, like, they're guarding a peace conference in the mind of evil, and they're kind of, they're involved with kind of a weird variety of things for a a task force that seemed to have quite a narrow sort of um a narrow purview. Yeah.
1: I guess like if there's no aliens, you've got to find something else to do. Yeah. Just, like, basic admin. Cuts. Um, <laughs> could be cuts. Could be cuts.
0: <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, it could be. Probably is, actually, yeah. It was the 70s. Everything was cutting.
1: You we're down to 50% staff levels, so Unit have to, like, do security work. <laughs> yeah, a
2: Unit cope with a three-day week. <laughs> <laughs> talking about
0: Unit inevitably leads us on to talking about the most visible aspect of the unit mm. which is the brigadier yeah never mind we'll soon fix him Jenkins oh.
2: shot for the wings there five rounds rapid
0: and i mean i think we, again we all have a lot of affection for the brigadier as i think like pretty much most dr who fans do um and a lot of that has to come down to nicholas courtney who there's a, there's a really interesting, I, I can't remember exactly which post it is, on uh, or which entry it is in Tardis Torum. but there's a, uh, I know that she compares, uh, Elizabeth Sandifer compares the Brigadier to the Colonel character from uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus, mm. who is this kind of, the, the figure who, if you're not familiar, who would kind of occasionally just interrupt a sketch and say, no, no, it's, it's too silly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so forth and just kind of shut things down and was this kind of this strange element of um of stability in a weird way this strange kind of agent of order I guess in a in a very chaotic mm. uh medium mm. or um milieu milieu is one of those words I really like saying like. Oeuvre. <laughs> Anyway, well, we'll get we'll get to people
1: with vaguely European pronunciation. <laughs> oh, oh I about we sure will. Thematic.
0: Um, but the brigadier, um, yeah, I, and I think something that we'll track actually as we go through this episode uh, and the next episode is how the brigadier that we see in season seven is maybe not quite the brigadier of people's memories. It's not the Brigadier of really the rest of the poetry era. It's certainly not the the Brigadier who turns up in episodes like Modern Undead or even Battlefield. Mm. He's kind of a sharper figure here, and his conflict with the Doctor is maybe a little bit more pronounced. Yeah.
1: So, I love him, but he did, like, spoiler alert, kill all those Silurians. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> so, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that we're talking about here where I'm kind of saying, like, yeah, I can see how that would be that terrible thing, but also I like it, and that's basically how I feel about the Brigadier a lot of the time. Mm. I, I mean, I I don't think that they like paint him as being in the right, but they definitely don't in the Silurian specifically. Sorry, I don't think they, I don't think that they present his actions. At the end of that story is justified, but um, I also don't think that they then use that as a way to like interrogate the character or unit um, in a way in in as thorough a way as they could have done. So it's a bit weird. It's not quite glossed over because they do mention the Silurians at the beginning of Ambassadors, but it's mm-hmm. just kind of like, oh, remember mm-hmm. when we killed all those people?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. the Doctor's kind of
2: like, oh, that was bad, and then forget <laughs> that about <it>.
1: pesky Brigadier. <laughs> <laughs>
2: There's also um, there's also the fact that he uh, tries... I mean, he can't, he doesn't realise this, but um, he tries to hold the Doctor against his will. He refuses to give him the TARDIS key because oh, he true, thinks yeah. he will run off. Yes, that's true. Um, which and is, he's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he is right. <laughs> but it, but it's... it's uh, again, I think you're right. It's that more pronounced conflict between the two of them. Um, mm-hmm. And... Yeah, it's it, it, it's. I think it's it's more authoritarian than uh, than than we see him later on as well. I would say. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I again. I like the Brigadier. Uh, I think Nicholas Courtney's like, just perfect for it, mm, and yeah. he's very good at giving irritated looks mm. Got a good oh, side he's a glance champion, yeah. a very good side glance even when he only has one eye he's very good at irritated looks
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> he channels it into a more focused <laughs> irritated look i mean it's another it's i know we
2: were saying earlier about the the comedy aspect of it. it it's one of those cases again where the comedy comes through the seriousness Mm. Um, yeah. Nicholas Courtney is funny because he's so serious <laughs> <time>. he's, a, <laughs> he's a very
0: very good straight man he's yeah. very deadpan
2: am I interrupting? yes
0: and I mean moving on from that I suppose um, in the, still in the, the unit vicinity mm-hmm. um, we should really talk about the companion for this series yes Um Liz who is a weird companion in that if you define companion as someone who travels in the TARDIS, she's not. Aww. She never gets to travel in the TARDIS. But nobody, I think, would ever dispute that she is a companion. Mm. But she's also kind of... She's kind of nobody's favourite companion, that's to be said. Mm. People like her, don't get me wrong. But you'd be, you'd be searching a while before you'd find anyone who, like, who would really go to bat for her. Mm. Um... And I I think, like, maybe that's partly because she only has... uh, She only ever had one series. Mm -hmm. In which, as I say, she never got to go in the TARDIS. So she never got to do the kinds of things that Doctor Who companions do. She never got to go to another world. She never got to go back in time or forward in time. And she never got to say, let's just go back to the TARDIS and ignore this terrible thing that is happening. Um... She never got to say, Doctor, I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> but um yeah. I mean what do we think of do first of all, would you look would we like to have seen more of Liz, do you think?
2: Yeah.
1: Yes. Definitely. I mean I like Joe as well, so I don't wanna I don't want it to feel like I'm prioritizing one over the other. And I'm glad that we did get all of the Joe stuff that we did. Mm-hmm. But yeah. mm-hmm. I really like Liz as a character, and I feel like if she had got even just one more series, it would have been really interesting and could have mm. potentially like elevated her to like the status that some of the other um, companions have. Because mm. the thing is, when you were saying like I was, when I think about Liz not being anybody's favorite, then I'm sort of sad. I'm like, oh no, but I like Liz. But then we've got a future episode of this. Podcast coming up where we're going to talk about favorite companions and we're coming up mm-hmm. with a top five and then I was like well I don't even know if like she's going to make my top five so I'm part of the problem yeah <laughs> I think we I think it would have been I think it I think it would have been nice to have got more time mm-hmm. to spend with her as a companion
2: mm-hmm. I think the thing that I really like about Liz is the fact that uh, and it's as you said unfortunately this is unusual in the program is that she's actually portrayed as an equal. Mm, um, yes. You know, and uh, she she can not just sort of assist, but like actually kind of research and and uh, kind of be on a level with the doctor. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that was Barry Lex's and Terrence Six's reason for actually removing her from the program was that she was seen as not. Uh, she she wasn't facilitating explanation of the plot, um, which I think is not true at all. Mm. Uh, I mean, for a start, you have the brigadier there anyway, mm, uh, yeah. who they frequently use to explain plot points. Yeah. Um, but also, like, it's still perfectly understandable. Like, even when she's talking about something scientific, it's not put in a way that that the audience can't understand. Mm. Yeah, it's just it's it's just a real shame because I think. I think she plays it very well, uh, and I and I really like the character, uh, and I like the fact that she's a scientist who's portrayed as an equal. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. I think I I have a real fondness for the kind of um, the the more kind of. Sciencey characters, the more mm. sciencey companions who. Except
1: Adric. I, I... <laughs> I almost felt like
0: that went unsaid. I'm <laughs> so sorry, I I
1: shouldn't have allowed him in with the sciencey crew. <laughs> mm.
0: No, that's Nissa's job. Aww. Um, but yeah, like people like Nissa, and obviously like like Romana, mm. who's kind of the the prime example of this. Yeah. Um, who get who get to be the ones who are. Nesso so and Nyssa's case really, but who are kind of on the equal on an equal footing with the Doctor. And you don't you di- you're probably right that you don't lose any of the exposition. Even with Romana, where there's there's no one around that they're kind of explaining mm. things to mm. until Adric comes along. and uh, ruins <laughs> everything. <He's Duggan. laughs> there is Duggan in one episode. <laughs> and a lot of things do need to be explained to Duggan. Yeah, um, I don't know
1: whether they necessarily get explained to him though. That's, that's another true. thing. <laughs>
0: Nonsense. What you need, Doctors, Miss Shaw herself so often remarked is someone
2: to pass you your test tubes and to tell you how brilliant you are.
1: I think if 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 anything this series is kind of a good demonstration of the fact that the companion doesn't need to be um a, the the person that's used for explanation yeah. purposes all yeah, the yeah. time, or that there's room for the companion to have more of like a mm. a base of knowledge of their own that interacts with The doctor in that on that level, Um, because clearly they have Liz is such a capable scientist, but they still get across the plots. I mean, it's not like it may maybe it was more difficult for the writers or something, but I don't think that's necessarily a reason not to do it.
2: I think it's maybe indicative of kind of stylistic changes in television as well. I feel like in the new series, you you wouldn't there wouldn't be such a. I don't think there'd be such a focus on exposition. Um, I think because, you know, it's a kind of long-form, like, every... Even the shortest episodes are an hour and a half if you total together all the four episodes. That mm-hmm. there's sort of, there, there is this space for this exposition, even when it's not really needed. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I find interesting about Liz, actually, is um, in spearhead uh which is her first episode her first story um she and the doctor like bond pretty much immediately they just like they they talk science at each other Mm. and like immediately like yeah Uh, and bond it must be said in opposition to unit and to the brigadier Mm. and neither of neither of them being particularly big fans of his authority um but what strikes me about that is it's very much in opposition to the there seems to be a thing in the new series in particular, I think, where companions need to prove themselves before they kind of can be companions, mm. um, which is why like pretty much every companion story is like they meet the doctor and they like help him defeat some alien thing. And then afterwards, he's like, hey, do you want to come in the TARDIS? Um, I mean, it's, it, the, the idea of there being a standard for companions is very explicit in series one, which we will get to. But um, in the classic series, there's less of that. People kind of stumble into the TARDIS quite a bit more. But Liz, um, like, like in the case of, for instance, Tegan, they literally just wander in by accident. <laughs> yes. but, like, um, but Liz seems to kind of almost fall between those in that she clearly meets, if there is a standard, she clearly meets it straight away. Mm. But there's also no sense for needing to meet a standard.
1: If you want to be my friend, you have to answer my riddles three.
0: <laughs> if you want to be my friend, you gotta. Um... Get with my lovers. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> I was going to say something like, you gotta drive this episode's plot or something. Oh, right.
1: <laughs> I was just Spice Girls, Spice.
0: <laughs> no, that, that was a very deliberate reference.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, I was I... trying to spice up the Doctor's life. Mm. <laughs> um he came here on a mission to spice up the world <laughs> anyway that was, was his, like... that was his mission
0: from the time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: i was gonna say that they get along instantly because they don't want to be there and mm. that's how you make friends when you're at work yeah yeah <laughs> that's how that it is happens very true.
0: it's very relatable
1: but, well, yeah, I do like how they just sort of instantly have that kind of easy, like, friendship. Mm. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah, me too.
2: I really like the first scene with Liz as well, where she's with the brigadier. Oh, And yes. she's just making fun of the brigadier. Yeah. <laughs> she's just like little blue men with three heads. Yeah. <laughs> Make,
0: making fun of the format of the show as well, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Which is quite yeah. nice.
1: She's ready to impale everyone on her false eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, speaking of the format, actually, I think we should talk a little bit. We've talked about Eunice. Um, but we should talk about the kind of Earth fan format mm. more generally, um, which is a weird thing, because this is a show that kind of, in a way, its biggest selling point, its biggest kind of the thing that is most unique about it is that it's constantly changing. It's constantly going to new places, literally, and new times, new planets, new kind of perspectives. And now suddenly it's stranded in the one place, more or less, the one time. Do you think that's um, inherently limiting? Or does it open up new possibilities?
1: I think it's a really good way to establish a new Doctor. I think that's probably one of the reasons why we get such a strong impression of what the third Doctor is like from this mm, mm. series. I think it's, it's good to see a character like the Doctor interacting with our world in quite an exten- extensive way. I don't know if it necessarily would require the length of time that this series devotes to the Earthbound episodes um, for each, for every Doctor. But I think mm-hmm. that it is quite handy because I think if you are introduced to a new Doctor in, like, a completely unfamiliar planet or time, then that's already unfamiliar. So it's not... That kind of fish-out-water effect can be quite useful mm-hmm. for figuring out who this... In- Who this person is and what he's about, Mm -hmm. and it's shoes. (laughs) It turns out it's shoes. Yeah. (laughs) Where are my shoes? shoes?
0: I must find my shoes. I I think something quite similar is done with um, Tom Baker actually, um, but in a slightly different way in that it robot throws him in among the the established unit cast, um, and so we kind of have this sort of new element in a very familiar setting. Uh, so I think there's, there's something similar going on. Mm-hmm. And it also um, establishes, obviously we're not talking about robot, but it d- establishes the distinction because whereas the third Doctor was happy to hang around on Earth most of the time, the fourth Doctor immediately buggers off and mm. comes back to Earth like a handful of times in the next mm. seven years of the, of the show.
2: It also, and I mean this isn't, this isn't just me saying this, I think John Perswee himself said this, it sort of emphasises the threat more. Um mm, yeah. you know I think the way he puts it is uh, is much more alarming to find a yeti sitting on your loo tooting back um mm. <laughs> than it is to go to, you know, a far flung alien planet. Um yeah, I think that idea that comes from the web of fear onwards mm. of of bringing the threat to a familiar setting. Yeah. Uh is one that is very effective.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's um it's this, obviously, despite UNIT being an international organisation, the threats are very, very concentrated in. I'm not even going to say Britain, in England, <laughs> yeah. for the most part. Uh, I mean, there's the little foray to Wales from every now and then, and, and
1: down south as well. Actually, con- considering yeah. that this is um, yeah. this is our Northern Doctor Who podcast, yeah. it seems like <laughs> um, it seems like all these stories are sort of in the south. You don't get anybody with like a noticeably. It's that
2: yeah. London. That's what it is. Yeah. Fat
1: London. Mm. Which,
0: given that one of the stories is basically about mining, is all the stranger. (laughs) (laughs) Two of the stories are kind of involved mining, actually.
1: It's all about going underground. Yes. Because, like, where can you go if not up? There's one about going up, and then there's two about going down.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then there's one about... Plastics.
1: Yes. (laughs) I was going to say, actually, just one quick thing about the Earthbound format is it's quite good for stuff like the Autons, where it's making stuff that we... Well, I mean, we don't see mannequins like that every day, but, Mm, like, stuff mm. that you see every day, scary. Yes. Like, particularly with the stuff with the doll factory, which I imagine we're going to want to talk about when we do Spearhead from space. Mm. But I think that that's one of the advantages of it. Because a lot of the... I mean, if you think of the episode from the new series that has sort of spawned the most iconic monster, it's probably Blink, Mm, that's set on Earth as well. So I think that there's something to be said for the fact that those can have the most fear Mm -hmm. impact because Mm. you're forced to imagine i mean they do it less successfully as well i'm thinking killer christmas trees but (laughs) but you know there's there's something to be said for taking the ordinary and making it terrifying
0: (laughs) yeah for sure and like and certainly again this is something we'll talk about um when we get to series one but like it it is striking that um rose Took that iconic image from Spearhead of the the Autons breaking out of the um the shop windows mm. and just straight up lifted it and put it back in the in the new series again and something that Rose is very uh, concerned with again as we'll get to is establishing um the setting as contemporary Earth if a slightly weird contemporary Earth mm. um so yeah um one other thing that I want to get. T- touch on before we get into the episode specifically, is the sort of arc of this season, which in a way is like a really anachronistic way to look at it, because nobody mm-hmm. thought in terms of arcs in mm-hmm. 1970, uh, but we do because we are good 21st century people who have seen <laughs> Breaking Bad and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and, unfortunately, Game of Thrones.
1: I've done a literature degree.
0: <laughs> so, as have we all, actually. So.
1: That's another thing that unites us.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I think it is worth talking about the kind of, the way the setting is, particularly, I think, the way the Doctor develops over mm-hmm. the course of this season, because he spends quite a lot of um, Spearhead from space trying to run away unsuccessfully. At the end of Inferno, he tries to run away unsuccessfully again. Mm. So, is, does anything happen to him in between, um, or is he basically just standing still in terms of character development for the whole season?
1: So, I think I'm not. I don't have a definite answer to that. But I think that when we last sort of talked about this, I came to the realization that I think that in a lot of ways the series would have had more of an arc if the middle two episodes had been flipped Mm, so that it went spearhead ambassadors, Silurians, Inferno because then you'd have the kind of the horrific events of the end of the Silurians would then go into this exploration of what the the extreme of those Mm. personality traits in the characters could Mm. lead to. Mm. I still think, I still don't think that the Doctor doesn't change at all but I think that it's probably quite subtle it's not like a dramatic shift that i can put my finger on and say Mm. this is where the doctor realized that instead of this he should be doing this or Mm. something i think it's more yeah i think i think him running away at the end feels different to the beginning maybe just because he has more of a sense of what he's running from Mm. but i don't know about that
0: certainly sorry um running away at the end Mm-hmm. Um, comes immediately after him, kind of badmouthing the brigadier, um, explicitly mm-hmm. comparing him to his um, his fascist other world person equivalent. So yeah, I think there there is a, that sense of him kind of it, There's there's something of the temper tantrum as well about that one that one. Um, whereas in Spearhead, it's part of a plan. Um, even if the plan does boil down to get away from here. Um, there it is kind of premeditated, whereas the the one from Inferno is more just kind of him trying to take the opportunity. He is obviously trying to fix the TARDIS throughout the series as well, and mm. um, so it's not as though that kind of is off his mind, but it's more that like
2: gets displaced. Yeah,
0: sorry, Jacob. What were you going to say?
2: Um, I, I'd say character development for the Doctor has always been somewhat of an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you if you think back to the classic series, in particular, it's often very hard to pinpoint a point where there's there's a clear character, there's clear character change within a regeneration. Obviously, like there's there's major shifts in the character when when the character regenerates. Yeah. Um. But in terms of like certain things happening in the plot and then impacting how the Doctor behaves, that's something that I think doesn't happen all that often. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something. To, I mean, Tom Baker's picked on it before. On it before when he. I think he said about playing the, the character, he said one of the most difficult things is that it, it's it's just a it's just a constant character. There's very rarely any changes to it. So his approach was basically I have to be as unpredictable as possible to kind of create this interest um in the character. Um there's certainly I can't see much development of Pertwee's doctor in the series. And as you kind of picked up on one of the one of the issues is in particular that his relationship with the Brigadier is not remotely strained after the Brigadier you know, he thinks has committed genocide Mm. essentially but yeah, as I say I think that's also an issue with with the character in general, I think Capaldi's Doctor is, as we'll get onto at some point is um, one of the few Doctors I'd say where there's there's a lot of character development uh, and he's very distinct from Season to season. Hmm. Oh, no. oh no.
1: That's not me at all. Oh, no wonder you didn't recognize me. Oh, that face.
0: Oh, that hair. <laughs> okay, so shall we move on to actually talking about each episode in turn? Mm-hmm.
1: Plastics.
0: Yes. <laughs> so we'll begin with um, Spearhead from Space. Like, I really like Spearhead from Space. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know I said this the last time um, we recorded uh, the sadly scrapped first version of this. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure I've said it many times before. But, like, I almost, in a weird way, think of Spearhead as, like, the model of a classic series episode. Um, partly because it's... Um, it's four episodes, which is unusual in season seven. It's almost like uh, how to write a Doctor Who script, um, which is interesting g- given that it's written by Robert Holmes, uh, who this is only his third story actually, but he'll go on to write many, many more and become like the most <laughs> prolific writer of the uh, classic series. And I think because of that, um, I think I I like well I like Spearhead a lot. It's pro- it's well, we'll get to where it ranks in my um, my appreciation of this season at some point. But it's an episode, it's a story, rather, that I think, I tend to think very fondly of in the third Doctor um, canon, shall we say. I think it's, I think it's one of the better uh, regeneration stories, actually, that's in the better stories, first stories for a Doctor, which are not always stellar, it must be said. Mm. Yeah, so what do you guys think of it in general, first off?
1: Uh, it's really good i think there's a reason why um the autons became so iconic and why people kind of returned some of the images in this episode so often like with rose um in the eccleston series Mm. it's really good (laughs) jacob (laughs) (laughs)
2: um yeah i I, yeah I, i really like spirit from space um I think you're right. It's definitely one of the stronger regeneration episodes. Um, I think, ironically, having the Doctor in bed for most of the... Well, particularly the first episode, mm. it actually works very well. Um, which is strange because obviously you're not really... You're not necessarily seeing a lot of the character, but you are getting glimpses of it while the rest of the new format is introduced. Mm. Um I think it's also worth saying as well that um, visually it looks really good, um, mm. yeah, it really because does. it's on film, mm. um, and it just it just looks so the directions look so fluid. Uh, mm. it's, it's just great.
0: Yeah, it really is an astonishing visual leap if you kind of watch straight from the War Games mm. to Spearhead. Uh, it looks like kind of several years have passed, and the uh, in terms of how far the kind of the look of the show has leaped forward. Uh, or even it's just distinct uh, if you, you know, want to kind of make a value judgment about it um, but it, it just does look bad let's be honest <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I think um, the fact that the Doctor is in bed for a lot of it is an interesting one um, and again this, this is something that's become especially in the new series well actually in the classic series as well mm. is almost commonplace kind of semi sidelining the Doctor for quite a bit of it mm. uh, Valva does it uh, time of the Rani sort of does it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Christmas Invasion really does it. Uh, Deep Breath does it. Eleventh Hour kind of does it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, in fact in all of those cases it's the Doctor specifically recuperating. Um, and that doubles as being sort of the actor feeling their way into the role in a way. Mm-hmm. It's it's a almost a, quite a potent visual metaphor for them kind of emerging. Mm. In the role, as it were. Mm. Um, and some from that point of view, something that is a bit striking about this episode is that it's kind of a... It's a slightly generic doctor that we get here. Like the... Um, what's the exchange that you were talking about earlier? The one about the communicating with
2: eyebrows? Oh, um... You saw on the planet Delphine where they communicate with their eyebrows. Yes, you talk about how expression his face is faces. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Which
0: which is great, and also kind of feels like a Tretton line, and mm, mm. um, which is interesting because um on the one hand that's obviously that's Robert Holmes being used to writing for Tretton, um and sort of trying to feel his way into this new Doctor, um but there's also a sense that Pertwee is trying to feel his way into the part, um and so there's not. There's not a lot of the kind of the Pertwee signatures in this apart from um, near the end where he's getting strangled by the Nestine and he, he does his going cross-eyed thing. Excellent. <laughs> but otherwise um, it, I would, it's, it's maybe a little bit unfair to say he feels generic but mm. um, he's, prob- he's not quite the third Doctor that we know which makes sense because it's the case for almost every Doctor in the first story mm. um, with Maybe one or two exceptions.
1: Once he gets the frilly shirt on, he's good. Well, exactly. Good to go. He's got a car. He's got some velvet items. Yes,
0: that's what what he needs. Yeah. Um It's the, towards the end of the second episode, I think, that he gets those. Oh, no, midway through the second episode.
1: Oh, right, but it's only when they become his actual possessions rather than stuff he stole from the doctor's changing room. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Again, there's that rebellious streak.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. No, there, I, there is definitely something in that, like the fact that he steals the clothes and the car and the fact that he then kind of bluffs his way past the unit guard by just kind of browbeating yeah. him, not letting him speak
2: by uh, the producer Derek Sherwin who looks like he hasn't slept for about five weeks Yeah, and,
0: <laughs> and pretty much looks like he has just stepped into a part and doesn't know what to do with <laughs> yeah, it yeah. <laughs> which works very well for the part, yeah. funnily enough but um, yeah, there's that kind of there's there's something interesting I think in the context of the wider third doctor authoritarianism and uh, Quotation marks authoritarianism Mm. in that the fact that he's kind of pretending to an authority he doesn't actually have in that scene and just kind of trying to bluff his way past the guards. It's um, it's the thing everyone does in D and D basically, where they try to (laughs) try to talk their way past guards and roll a deception check.
1: (laughs) You can tell he's a rebel because he's got a a sick tat.
0: He does, yes, Mm. he's Mm. got his
1: unveiled uh, in mm. the shower scene.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's uh, John Pertwee's navy tattoo. Which I, <laughs> one of my favorite things in the world is Doctor Who fans trying to explain away things that do not need to be explained away, <laughs> and that's one of the classics because it's the if, what's the explanation that people have come up with that it's like it's like a prison
1: tattoo, a prison
2: brand, yeah, yeah like yeah. like
0: a mark of his exile somehow, <laughs> as opposed to just like he regenerated with a tattoo. Why not?
1: The yeah. frilly shirts are a mock physics <laughs>
0: yes the frilly shirts are like the hair shirt that he chooses to wear
1: oh I like the frilly shirts I just wanted to point that out
0: <laughs> so do I I mean on on that kind of note of undermining authority I think that there's a really interesting thing about the the way this episode progresses that only struck me like after a few viewings is the the character of the janitor uh, in the hospital, mm, mm. in episode one, who is ignored by the uh the doctor, doctor with a small D, um, the doctor who is looking after the doctor, uh, as being kind of beneath him in some way. And uh, got incidentally, the janitor with a uh, regional accent, with a Welsh accent, I mm. believe. One of the few characters in this story with a regional accent. Mm.
2: It's but- also one of the only. Welsh actors on British television at the time it seems because every time, every time there is a Welsh character in a 1970s TV programme it is that man playing him <laughs> like the Survivors, he's in Survivors playing a Welsh there's loads of stuff <laughs> Does he turn up in The Green Death? Yeah he's in The Green Death <laughs> as well yeah,
0: yeah. Of course he is The Welsh episode
2: yeah. I
1: really want to know who he is now, I hope he's got a very Welsh name I think, or he's, maybe... called, I think he's called Talfrin Thomas that's a good. Name. His name. I think it would it would either have to be a really Welsh name or like a not Welsh name at all. Like if his actual name is John Smith, I might be totally
2: mispronouncing that, but I'm sure that's what it is.
0: Um, yeah, but the the thing that strikes me about him is the fact that, as I say, he's ignored mm. and he's kind of he's almost like fading into the background, but he's the one who then calls the press, which um is how the the nestine finds out about the doctor and about what's going on Mm. and so he's the one who moves the plot along yeah in a way precisely because he's been ignored Mm. and there's something interesting there's there's an interesting Mm. thing always going on with um a lot of robert holmes scripts in terms of the kind of uh often this is framed in a kind of an explicitly um class dynamic as well Mm. but the the sort of ignored element which Mm. turns out to be really important Mm. so the the one that pops into my head straight off is Binro the Heretic, in the Reboss operation. Partly just because I love Binro the Heretic, um, because again, Binro the Heretic is it's such d and D name. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, the the notion of the, this character who's living in kind of kind of a literal kind of um, sub layer of society, mm. um, who ends up being like weirdly influential on the plot.
2: And it also happens with. Um... In Spearhead with with Sam Seely, the uh, the poacher as well, mm. um, you know who who hides this sphere in the hope that it'll accrue value and he'll he'll get a reward for it. Yeah. Um, and again, like he's he's someone who is seen as insignificant, mm-hmm. um, who is actually extremely significant. Mm.
0: Has a regional accent as well.
2: And yeah, has a regional accent. <laughs>
0: I can't really. He's got kind of a generic sort of West Country accent. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I mean, it's it's all unfortunate um, sort of trope of nineteen seventies Doctor Who of yeah. the uh, the 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 silly yokel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of trope. Yeah, there's Stereotype. a few of them,
0: unfortunately. Yeah. It's yeah.
1: okay. They're gonna get their revenge in the demons. <laughs> <laughs>
0: mm, the revenge of the Morris dancers. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> mm.
1: Almost as scary as going to an exhibition of prominent civil servants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I
0: like, I'm I am, am- I'm amazed there's as many people there as there actually are when the Doctor in <laughs> <laughs> Leeds up. Cause like, um, I mean, I, I love my dad, but I can't imagine anyone going to, uh, to see a waxwork of him. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I mean, related to that, I, the big sort of element that really jumps out at me about this story, which we've kind of actually, um, Beth mentioned earlier, in fact, is the, the notion of the uncanny, uh, which is a big, big deal here. Uh, the most obvious way, obviously is the obviously, Re- the really obvious, obviously, um, is the notion of the shop dummies coming to life. Um, which again is, it's such a potent image, which is why it's picked up on again in rows. Um and that's that's quite a clear uncanny thing of like this thing that seems human seems kind of is made to be lifelike suddenly having life in it, but in a way what's even more what's even weirder is there's a there's quite a bit of deliberate blurring of lines here with like the um the wax version of um General Scobie,
2: is it? Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. Um who be is indistinguishable from the actual uh General Scobie. And then there's also the really weird collage of images in the doll factory. Mm. Yes. Which is one of the more weirdly disturbing things that's ever been in a Doctor Who episode, I think. And it's like, there's... These dolls are not... There's no sense that these dolls are, like, infected with nesting consciousness, that they are going to come to life or anything, unlike in Terror of the Autons. <laughs> um, but they're just... They're made to be... Because we see the kind of... The manufacture process, they're made to be... Um, they're made to be alienating, basically. Um, mm. They're made to be kind of suddenly Disturbing. Um, and this is a family show. This is a show that's going to be watched by children who play with dolls. Mm, mm. And so it's a really weird touch. And like, and I mean weird in the most complimentary way <laughs> possible.
1: Yeah, I think it's really clever how they used just the day-to-day workings of a factory like that mm. to get a sense of real like, horror and unease. Because... Mm. Mm. Like the, the the people who you sort of see in those clips are clearly not... Well, I imagine that they must just be the people that work in the factory where they filmed that. It's mm. not like they're actors or anything. So you're really just seeing the day-to-day business of a plastics factory that makes dolls. Mm. But it's really horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um. And I think that it's a really clever way to create the connection between plastic and fear that is what the Autons mm. are kind mm. of... Mm. On.
0: Yeah.
2: I think there's also, uh, you know, I'm going to get into economic history now. Good. good. Um, <laughs> it's what but, we're all here for. <laughs> but um, th- there's also, I think a lot of this story is about, uh, you know, I certainly get that, that sense of the uncanny, but it's also uh, fear and kind of anxiety about Britain's place within the world economically. Uh-huh. Um, there's this emphasis throughout of the factory being automated mm, yeah. um you know and this is this is at a time of of widespread strike action uh, it's not long before the, the three-day week and uh, a minor strike which will bring down a conservative government even prior to that you have problems with uh, the devaluation of the pound and rising inflation um something that's kind of particularly humiliating for wilson's government and i think you can see that in the story in the in the way in which it's very much focused on on industry and production and you have general scoby at one point even talking about how machines don't strike hmm. yes um, yes and so i i guess you can say in some ways the autons are a kind of a metaphor for that that fear of automation that fear of 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 being replaced as a way to circumvent the kind of obstruction of uh, of organized labor you know' we're seen as an obstruction anyway mm-hmm. um, and I think that's why it's quite interesting that the villain is essentially can animate plastic um, it can animate a a substance that is flexible and again that it's the emphasis in the episode is specifically on it being flexible i think the manager of the factory talks about how they've managed to outcompete all the other companies because because it's flexible and so there's this sense particularly now i think you can see in retrospect this sense of concern about britain's economic position because it's seen as very fixed and constrained and set in its ways and you know it has very top down uh, state industry and in its it seems constrained by I don't know the trade union movement. Some people would argue, and so yeah, I think there's there's definitely that sense of fear, um, mm. a particularly fear of foreign competition. Mm. Um, I think the fact that the alien is uh, very clearly from outside. You know, we see the the nesting units land, mm. um, which is so, very unusual, actually. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's a sense of you know this external threat.
0: The character um, who, like, works in the factory returns to it Mm. uh, towards the beginning as well. I can't remember his name now. Mm. But he's explicitly come back from, like, a fact-finding mission in the U.S. as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: He's the one who's, like, kind of weirdly obsessed with dolls. Yes. Not in a way that's supposed to be, like, creepy, but I'm just, like, cool it, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's fine. You can, like, chill. (laughs) Although I suppose, you know, it's his livelihood. So who am I to judge? <laughs> hmm.
0: we, we mentioned a couple of times that the Doctor explicitly like, tries to run away um, in this story. In fact, he takes his first opportunity, really, to jump in the TARDIS and run away. Which is the kind of, weirdly is the kind of the stereotypical companion thing of, like, running away, trying to run away mm. from the, wanting to run away from the story, just get back in the TARDIS and run, mm. um, which is interesting in itself. And it's very, very unheroic as well. Not only the fact that he tries to run away, but the fact that he manipulates Liz in order to do so. For all that we were talking about, the kind of the immediate bond between them um, earlier, which I think is absolutely true, and mm. is absolutely the case, he still, he, like, he still lies to her and tries to, like, and Tries to get her to kind of work behind the Brigadier's back mm. in order to get him the TARDIS key so he can run away, which is interesting because it's it's so opposed to the way we think of the characters, specifically you know in many ways the way we think of the Third Doctor, in mm. fact. Mm. And I, on the one hand, this could be what I was talking about before. Um, this could be just the kind of like Holmes not being sure what kind of writer, Doctor he was writing. Pertwee not being sure what kind of Doctor Who is playing yet. It could be that kind of initial uncertainty, because it's it's quite right actually, again, uh, that whole kind of move. But I also think you can see it as the beginning of some kind of character development. <laughs> <laughs> Back on this, because um, given that this the whole animating principle of really most of the Pertwee era... Is the notion that the doctor has be is in exile, because he keeps kind of flitting between planets and causing mm. chaos. Mm. Um, this is him reverting to that instinct straight away, as he as I've said, he will kind of continue to do throughout the season, and finding that thwarted. So his next inst- instinct is, well, okay, I'll work with the people around me and try to like defeat the alien menace. Where the third Pertwee era kind of moves forward is that defeating the alien menace isn't where he stops working with the people around him. And um, he kind of, he makes use of the resources that they are available, that they will make available to him. And in doing so, he kind of accidentally ends up forming a kind of, I mean, people talk about the unit family. That's as basically what he ends up forming mm-hmm. around him. Mm-hmm. And not so much more in season eight, I think is where that starts. When you get um, Joe and Yates and Benton becomes a regular character uh, rather than just kind of turning up every now and then to get turned into a prime ward. But, <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I think there is there's something in that. Um, and while in many ways it's kind of a, it is kind of a retrospective thing that I'm imposing, I still think there is a narrative that you can kind of trace there. Yeah.
1: I think it's self-care and it's valid. (laughs) Sometimes you just want to go in the TARDIS, like, do a face mask, have a long bath. (laughs) I don't know, guys. (laughs) I
2: mean, it's an interesting thing because um, I remember hearing numerous times in various different interviews of Terence Dix that uh, the Doctor is, in his exact words, an extremely good, extremely moral character. Mm. Um, And I think... I've always thought that's a, a total um, misinterpretation of what the character is. You know, um, I wouldn't, I, I certainly wouldn't describe William Hartnell's Doctor as extremely good. He may be extremely moral, but it's a specific kind of morality. You know, it's not yeah. necessarily a morality that we would see as good. And I, and I think that runs out and when we get to McCoy's Doctor yeah. at some point. That's particularly interesting uh, yeah and i think that manipulative element comes through mm-hmm. quite strongly
0: i think um I, on, a, on a very wide level I, like i would agree with you and i think quite often the doctors i like most like mccoy like tom baker like uh, capaldi mm-hmm. are the ones who have that air of kind of of mystery of operating according to a code that they understand but no one around them really does mm. whereas it's it's actually the tends to be the ones I like least not naming any names and um, that <laughs> um w- that are more adhering to the kind of ultimately good mm. um mm. sort of by human standards mentality um apart from Colin Baker who is just a train wreck in general but we'll get to that So, I think, uh, do we have any any other specific points we want to make about Spearhead?
1: The monster at the end looks like a butthole. Yes. That's all I wanted to say. I just needed to get it out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how I can spin that out. Uh, There's a Freudian reading there. Of course, there's a Freudian reading. But let's not go there. Maybe
1: we'll do a very special episode that's just (laughs) Freudian (laughs) reading. (laughs) Well,
0: just spend like five minutes talking about the uncanny
1: yeah <laughs> i meant you know
0: yeah no i know what you <laughs>
1: mean cigars yeah
0: oh, um yeah we can talk a lot about the masters um like thing that he uses the, the ainley masters um, oh god some oh. kind of tool <laughs> yeah. um...
1: i believe
2: what's oh what's it called now it's the there's something compression so, I, I can't remember I'll find out. I, th- I
0: think of it as the mysterious tool myself. Mm. <laughs> anyway. Matter,
2: <laughs> matter compression something yeah, or other. it's something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
1: should we talk about some subterranean boys?
0: Let's talk about some subterranean boys.
2: But mm.
1: soon we shall revive our civilization and reclaim the Earth for ourselves. No, you mustn't. Otherwise there'll be the most terrible war. But if you trust me, I think I can persuade the humans that you are prepared to live with them on this planet in peace. There is not room for both civilizations. Yes, I think there is. So
0: the Silurians. Or Doctor Who and the Silurians, as it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as a, a name of which Jacob <laughs> approves massively.
1: It's <laughs> um, that Jacob's controversy meter that we just explained. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: so, and I think the controversy meter will go off a few more times in the course of this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the Silorians. I like the Silorians, um, both the kind of. Actually, I probably like the the species Silorians more than I like the actual story, but um, it's. I mean, I think my overriding impression of this is There are things about it that I really like There are things about it that I think I just don't work But I think This is Doctor Who's First shot In some ways At things that it will do better Down the track mm. Including the organs themselves mm. So from that point of view I think it's a very interesting story I think it's a very valuable story But it's got big honking flaws Which we will get to
1: and honking music. <laughs> oh,
0: which That's... we all definitely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, um in terms of just like brief thoughts on the episode, on the so- on the story, I think kind of similarly to Kieran, I think there is a lot to like about it, but mm. I think that it's also let down in some unfortunate ways. I think also like um Basically every story apart from Spearhead, it's too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is the source of a lot of the issues with the next stories we're going to talk about.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be very boring here and agree with everything that's been said. Uh, it's too long. <laughs> um, that's something I'm going to say many times. Um, you're right. It's I like the fact that it's attempting to give... It's not an alien race, but another another species in the in the, in the program. Some kind of depth and complexity. Mm. Unfortunately, it doesn't. In the execution, I don't think that necessarily comes off. Um, but at least it's there and it's a starting point. But yeah, there's there's lots that I enjoy about it. But I, mm. I think it I think it's also flawed. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Mm. So, to, I mean, to start us off, um, something that really struck me the last time I was watching this story, especially watching it in context, um, was how much this is very much um, a story, which – and I think this is very much the case of all of these stories, actually um, – this is very much a 1970 story. Uh, it's a very Cold War story. Mm. Um, I mean, first of all, it's it's set around a nuclear reactor which is going wrong and explicitly threatens to explode in the course of the episode. So there's all that kind of anxiety there. It, the the story is set around tensions between two basically theoretically compatible groups. So again, kind of Cold War echoes there. There's a lot of um, at least elements of espionage going on. Mm. Um, there's the Suspicion of sabotage quite early on. Um, There's the notion of double agents. um, Dr. Quinn being a double agent. Working with the Silurians. For his own reasons. And then later in the episode. You even get chemical warfare basically. uh, From the Silurians on the humans. Mm. So it's it's kind of. It's dealing with very very contemporary elements. In the same way that I think. Ambassadors is as we'll go into. Mm. um, Mm. In the next episode. Yeah, I don't know any 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 kind of thoughts on that. Um,
2: I mean, it's worth mentioning um, that Malcolm Hulk, who wrote the episode, was a communist. Yeah, I don't know if he was at the time he was writing, but he certainly had been uh, a member of the communist party, and uh, so much so that he used to go and write, uh, play, go to East Germany, and put on plays. Yeah. So yeah, um, that you can definitely see that element there. And like you say, this constant accusation of the Doctor as a spy and this this subterranean group who are lurking beneath the surface and then, you know, kind of have possibly infiltrated the, the base, I think, yeah, you can definitely see it.
0: Yeah, I mean, as as always in in Doctor Who in these kinds of broadly allegorical stories, mm. it's kind of it's exaggerated and it's and you know, the the groups here are humans and lizard men. Um <laughs> when kind was of...
1: in the actual Cold War it was lizard men and lizard men. Yes. <laughs> I don't actually believe that. <laughs>
2: no,
0: none of us do. Where's
2: David Icke when you need it? <laughs> <Hell>. <laughs> Sorry Um, Just to clarify, I do not want David Icke here (laughs) Ever I think you
0: going to say Just to clarify, I don't want David Icke to go to hell Oh no,
2: no, no I'd like to have
1: a Silurian here though
2: Yes, that would be nice That would be good I have decided that it
1: is possible For the two species to
0: live together On this planet something that i really like in this actually is the way in which it kind of it does the weirdly good does the classic monster movie thing of withholding the silurians um possibly because they don't actually look that great when they turn up but um for the first couple of episodes um we only get kind of glimpses um on the silurians You don't really even know they're there until probably the second episode i think um, as opposed to the the big boy, as I referred to him in my notes, <laughs> um, who we see just straight away and actually see in not necessarily in detail, but at least we we like see his head pretty much almost one of the first things we see in the in the story. We, it's not really until uh, the I think it's the end of the third episode that we properly see a And um, before that, we get like the the something I really like actually the POV shots with the like third eye at the top um which does a nice thing where it like in a way it um it helps with making the sardorians less monstrous when we're seeing things literally seeing things from their point of view mm-hmm. but also and um, but it also um does the the thing of making them kind of creepy making them kind of flitting around the edges of the kind of human civilization and of course we see one actually attack and kill a person from its point of view so I think, you uh, know, in a weird way, kind of that's a nice kind of technical element that straddles both lines of making them mysterious and monstrous, but also kind of understandable. And also when it does appear um, we get one of my favorite cliffhanger resolutions in all of Doctor Who, which also manages to challenge um, the idea of the monstrosity where uh, the cliffhanger to episode three is the doctor finds i think finds actually finds the body of dr queen um and is examining it uh, and realizing there's a a lizardy boy about when he turns around and a silurian like lunges out of a doorway and the the music comes up as the doctor is looking shocked and the resolution to that cliffhanger at the start of episode four is the doctor looks shocked and then extends a hand and says hello are you a silurian (laughs) which is just fantastic
1: hello that's not how they talk not quite now although it's in the ballpark of how they talk (laughs) isn't it it's in the ballpark of how they all talk yeah
0: which i think brings us on to the the big problem with the Silurians, doesn't
1: it yeah so the costumes aren't the best they're also i don't think that they're terrible i think the Mm. costumes could have been worked around Mm. Mm. um but i think the main problem with how they're sort of used in the episode is that they had the same person doing all of the voices and he didn't seem to have a lot of voices that he could do no
0: unfortunately no about two it's like when
1: the DM in D and D establishes multiple characters at once, and they have to have distinct <laughs> voices. But you can only do like two accents or something, <laughs> yeah. and it means that although I guess they're distinct from each other, kind of, you don't like that some of the voices are just ridiculous, um, and I think they would have been better off just hiring like more voice actors. Also, they seem to have. I think we established um, last time we spoke about this that they have more costumes than they seem to be regularly using in the episode. They seem to use about three main Silurians, but they mm. have maybe two extra costumes. They
0: seem mm. to be about five or six uh, altogether when they when they like. A, there's a group of them in the reactor room near the end. Mm. There's about five or six of them. Mm.
1: So I think it's a shame that they didn't um, try and get more of a sense that there was a significant population of them kind of before mm. that point. Because mm-hmm. I know they mention it, but mm. it's difficult to not see that when you're only sort of seeing two, maybe three at a time on screen.
2: Well, this is the kind of thing I was referring to when I when I said about... Um, I thought that it was good that they were trying to give the monsters complexity, but it doesn't necessarily work in the execution. And this is yeah. part of the issue, is you have a story whose fundamental premise is about... Um, is about how, you know, the the species who they're um, sort of encountering aren't necess- like inherently bad. They're, they're, you know, they're a mixture of bad and good, just, just like humanity is. And yet that can't come across because the costumes don't deliver any expression. Yeah, so that's a big problem. You, you you struggle to get any kind of distinct personality, something which... When they brought the Silurians back, I think they tried to rectify by mm. purposefully making face, uh, make, makeup and masks, which do uh, off allow some expression. Yeah. But also, as you said, having a range of about two voices, which sound ridiculous, yeah. again, doesn't really offer any kind of expression. Mm. Um, I mean, particularly later on in, in Tom Baker's era, I think... There are certainly attempts, when you think of something like Sutek, for example, um, of having very distinct, dramatic voices mm. for characters who have no facial expressions yeah. at all. Uh, well, of...
0: even Davros is essentially a vocal performance. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, in this particular case, it fails on on, on both counts, mm. which is a real shame.
0: yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with it. everything all of you have said. I think the the lack of facial expressions is a real problem. And I actually wonder if the number of costumes they produced might have worked against that as well, mm. in that they had to make so many that they kind of couldn't make them that distinct. Mm. Mm, that's, um, a po-
1: that's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that.
0: They couldn't, like, focus on the face in particular. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it has to be said that while I think it's, it, it's a problem with the execution in terms of the costumes themselves and in terms of the, the voice acting can't really let the writing away with, um, (laughs) because like Malcolm Hawk tries, bless him, just about tries (laughs) to give the Salurians some kind of internal conflict. But that conflict boils down to, and this is a direct quote from, I think episode five or six, where the kind of the good Silurian says something along the lines of like, um, well oh, I think we should cooperate with the humans. <laughs> 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 to which the 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 other Silurian, the kind of broadly bad one, says, I disagree.
1: We must destroy them It's uh it's Brectian. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh... <laughs> kind of yeah no the the writing is it's strange because it's not like uniformly bad throughout no, the really episodes not. but mm. yeah I think particularly when it's bad and given to characters that can't make facial expressions where they're only talking mm. to each other and they're like doing silly voices back at each other it's just kind of a perfect mm. storm of yeah bad things. Yeah. And the thing
2: is there's no there's not really an excuse for it in the sense that um it's seven episodes long. Mm-hmm. You've got more than enough uh, time to be able to develop something much richer and complex uh, complex in terms of character and they don't do that. And I th- I think that's an issue in a lot of uh long long form dot two stories mm-hmm. is this tendency to try and find padding for the plot rather than trying to look more like interesting internal conflicts within the characters yeah definitely
1: it's quite strange in the case of the silurians because i think that there is one thing that they have that's quite interesting that they don't choose to expand on Mm. even as they're padding it out in other areas which is they have the feature of the humans that encounter the the big boys. Are the big mm. boys given any, na- any name or are they just... I
0: can't remember one anyway. Big Chonk
1: mm. Lizard Boy. Anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. when they <laughs> encounter them, they sort of revert to this caveman state. Yeah. Mm. Which they could either have potentially used to build up more tension, hold off the reveal of the Silurians for a little longer, or they could have just found another way to use that, but then it doesn't really come mm. up again after mm-hmm. they've seen that one lad drawing a mm. Silurian, mm. and they're like, mm. what's this? <laughs> I quite like I just thought that was kind of an interesting...
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, although, yes, we said, this is one of a number of places in Doctor Who history where the writers don't know how evolution works. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the timeline is so weird um, that the Silurians like went into hibernation before the moon was formed, so that's hundreds of millions of years ago. And yet they know what an ape is. Yeah. 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 And it's implied that humans have some kind of racial memory of the Sardorians as well, or at least of giant lizards, which...
1: No, no, Doctor Who writers understand perfectly how evolution happened. What happens is uh, Scaroth uh, (laughs) 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 fell into a pool of sludge. I can't even remember.
0: (laughs) It's like Scaroth. Scaroth and Sutek and like various other kind yeah. of extraterrestrial villains all kind of pushing and pulling at various aspects of human civilization.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, all- it's just all the aliens that have been here the yeah. whole time. <laughs> I mean,
2: the thing is, like, I'm not I'm not someone who thinks Doc is gonna be really hard science. And oh, God blah, blah, blah. No, you God, know, I'm not no. like that, and I don't think any of us are. But at the same time, when it's doing basic stuff like this, stuff, yeah. I feel like it's not really excusable. I mean, I, I think that's why people will get on to it eventually. But Kill the Moon's another example of a story that people detest um, for scientific reasons. Um, All yeah.
1: but one brave people. <laughs> ah,
2: interesting. All <laughs> but
0: one very prominent um, brave person, actually. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I think, yeah, I th- like... I don't think it's a big problem because I think Mm. stories like even Ghostlight to an extent and um, Curse of Fenric like get evolution and certainly survival get Evolution very wrong mm, as well, mm, but mm. it really works thematically there, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and even to be honest, I will we'll get on to this when we get to the Bid meat era. But like, even when Doctor Who is doing hard sci fi, it's not it's really. <laughs> really, really not. It's throwing in words like entropy and recursion every now and then, yeah, uh, to sound clever, basically. Yeah. I really like the big Mead era, by the way. I'm not doing it down, but anyway.
1: The only good science in Doctor Who comes from Liz. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, shall we talk about the spa?
1: Yes, so uh, the Silurians um, have a spa underground. <laughs> this is very important to my understanding of this episode, so I hope that everyone's going to be on board with this. Um, when you see a man in one of the like episodes go into a sort of sludge and then gets dissolved or something
0: he he gets trapped and then they pick him up Yes, yeah, ah. so
1: that's the foot bath for entering the silurian spa but unfortunately it was toxic to like apes i guess mm. um but if he just managed to turn the corner he would have found like four silurians chilling in a hot tub and another one's getting like an intense back massage from the big reptile <laughs> boy <Yeah. laughs> and i just decided that this was the case very early on and then like that's just what i think now
0: well what happened was there were just more and more things that seemed to prove
1: your case yeah i would see some them turning a corner with a clear like relaxed attitude and be like that's <laughs> the look of some guys that have just been at the spa and uh, like they had the sunbed like chambers that yes. they sleep in yes they
0: they've been hibernating in sunbeds
1: yeah or some kind of treatment that yeah, involves yeah. So I think they had a lot to teach us about um, advanced relaxation technologies, and I think it's a tragedy that we'll never get to access that knowledge yet. <laughs> so
2: basically, the doctor was going, was barking down the wrong, but I was gonna say barking down the wrong path, barking up the wrong tree.
0: Barking down the wrong path works a lot better for Salyorians, so mm-hmm.
2: That's true, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's their but, fun uh, <laughs> saying. <laughs> yeah. He should, um, he should have, he should have just suggested that they could live together through offering a relaxation services. They Good could like benefits.
0: Yeah, they could trade their yeah. uh, their knowledge of yeah. uh, relaxation techniques. Trade beauty yeah. secrets. Exactly, yeah.
1: <laughs> that would be great. And then you could have like Silurian like beauty gurus on YouTube. I would watch. <laughs> I would like, share and subscribe. Yeah.
0: How to bring out your scales at their, their oh. best luster. Oh.
1: <laughs> that would be amazing so obviously when you're in the spa you need some like relaxing tunes and i feel like that's kind of where this episode doesn't deliver oh god <laughs> <No>, really no <laughs> um... <laughs> That's attempt at the music. Yeah, that's a pretty (laughs) much shift. It was great. For
0: all seven episodes. (laughs) Uh, There's a thing, and I think this is is actually more pronounced in Ambassadors than in Sidorians, but it's very much the case in both. I just don't think anybody told Doctor Who composers what they were writing music (laughs) for. Yeah, yeah. I think they just kind of threw something together and then, like, shipped it off and... The editors were like, "Okay, let's just put this here and see what happens."
2: Well, apparently, I think I think the I think this the story with this one was something like, Carey Blyton, who, who composed the music, was struggling to come up with a distinctive sound that would suit <laughs> the Silorians, and so he was like really worrying about it. And then apparently one night at like, two in the morning or something, he phoned up the director and went. Guess what, guess what, I've got it. Played it down the phone to him. (laughs) Where it sounded even worse than it does on the television. (laughs) And the director was like, Yes, fine, it's fine. And just went back to bed. (laughs) And then probably the next morning woke up and thought, Oh, God.
1: (laughs) There's so much that I find horrifying about that story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't even know that there's much to say about the music. It's just horrible, really.
1: We were speculating before recording about what would happen if you had Murray Gold score the Silurians. <laughs> so it'd be like, <laughs> I think we should live in harmony with the humans. Do, 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 do.
0: I mean, I, there are some good points about this <laughs> this story. I have to say, and and something that I thought was quite interesting um, about this is, so when the doctor uh, and Liz first arrive to the military installation, episode one, they're introduced to three human characters. Um, there's Dr. Lawrence who like runs the place, Dr. Quinn who is in charge of the kind of. Um, what he's in charge of, actually, specifically <laughs> treachery. <laughs> As it turns out, yeah, he's the chief traitor. Um, I think I think he vaguely runs the reactor, though, um, and Major Baker, who's in charge of security, and all three of those human characters die in the course of the story, mm-hmm. uh, which is not unusual in itself, obviously, but they all die due to some flaw of their own. Um, so, Doctor Lawrence is too kind of arrogant and too. Married to his own work, to uh, to leave and to like uh, to be treated, in fact, and to come to the quarantine when the Silurians unleash their virus, and so he dies from it. And Doctor Quinn, as we've mentioned, is killed by the Silurians. Um But the reason he's killed is because he's kind of trafficking with them in the first place, and uh, because of his own greed, his own specifically his greed for knowledge and mm. uh, for so- the scientific knowledge that they can give him. Um, and greed for knowledge is an interesting one actually because that's arguably something the Doctor himself kind of suffers from at various points mm. but, uh, which is potentially worth picking up on at some point mm. and then Major Baker uh, it's his own paranoia that kills him um, because he's the one who keeps wanting to bring the fight to the Silurians he ends up going down into the caves himself half cocked to uh, try and kill them gets stuck in the foot bath <laughs> um, and so the <laughs> Ends up being the kind of the um, patient zero for the virus, so I I don't necessarily have a wider point to make about that, but I think it is a nice bit of story structure, mm. um, the way in which that works, because sometimes it's possible to look at Doctor Who stories as like just being kind of spun out, um, especially classic stories as just being kind of spun out across the episodes, um, and sometimes that's clearly true. Mm. Um, and I think there are aspects of this ep- this story where it's clearly true. There's clear- clearly padding. But there is, at other times, you look at them and there is very clear kind of, there's some, some quite elaborate structures being built. And while this isn't necessarily an elaborate structure, I still think it's an interesting one. Mm.
1: I think it's definitely interesting in terms of showing that the um, Silurians and the humans are both kind of forces with their good and negative aspects Mm -hmm. like the humans the silurians have their qualms about working with the humans but also the humans make bad and bad but understandable decisions as well yeah i think that's maybe Mm -hmm. what it's going for again with the caveats that we've said about Mm -hmm. the execution of the silurian plots But but i think um yeah i think it is interesting that there's such a number of human characters that don't fall victim to an alien menace so much as they kind of are um, undone by their own kind of personal flaws. Yeah.
0: Mm. Um, I think you could even say that about the um, the permanent undersecretary named Masters, mm. and <laughs> which entertained me so much because this is the last bi- like stage of the program where you can get away with calling a character Masters without mm. it actually turning out to be the master um but like yeah even even he is kind of while he's a bit more amenable than those other lads um, he kind of still kind of won't be told what to do he's insisting on like running back to london and uh while to be fair in his part it's partly kind of bad timing that he just kind of they just keep missing him and um, he also ends up succumbing to the virus um and the virus actually is something we should talk about a little bit as well because again it's, it's actually, I think, really even though it's an aspect of this story that, to be honest, I forget about if I haven't seen it for a while, it's actually really effective in the way it's done. Yeah. It's actually quite horrific to look at mm. and the, the physical effects of it. Mm. Um, but even I, I really like the idea of um, something that rarely happens in the, the poetry era is that the kind of consequences of the story kind of spiral out from wherever it's actually set. Yeah. Yes. So here we have London and beyond, but certainly we see mm-hmm. London actually um, fall victim to an alien plague. And mm-hmm. um, the only other... I, I really can't think of many cases where stuff like that happens. A little bit Terror of the Autons. Kind of, to an extent, Clause of Axos as well. Yeah. But, like, the stories tend to be very contained. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting kind of mm. counter-example of that.
2: I think that goes for a lot of the classic series. Mm-hmm. A lot of the yeah. classic series... I think with the modern series, we're very much used to like here's this massive, huge scale um, yeah. of, of of a threat, you know, that, yeah. that spreads across the entire planet, and and sometimes the new series takes that far too far. Um, we'll get onto that at some point, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, no, I agree. I, I think the the plague stuff, actually, I'd say, especially the the. the the bit where he goes to London and you see it kind of spiral out of control—that's some of my favourite stuff in the in the episode. I'd mm, say actually, yeah. um, and I think it's I think it's really well shot as well. Mm, uh, yes. Particularly the moment where he kind of collapses. I think that's really good. Mm. Um,
0: you don't get very much kind of showy direction in the classic series, mm. and I don't think this is particularly showy at all. But like, no. uh, I think it is very effective in a way that a lot of the direction of the classic series is quite functional and mm. like. Functional is not a bad thing, but um, it's rare for something to really stand out the way that does. Mm. And in fact, I think it's something you don't get much until maybe yeah. uh, Tom Baker's era. Mm.
2: Again, it's sort of the film versus studio thing. I think the yeah, fact that you've got sure. these just these I think it's like four or five just like enormous cameras that have no mobility in the studio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as soon as you can get out on film, it's like it's a breath <laughs> of fresh air.
0: Yeah. One final thing I want to say about this story, and this brings us on to something we've talked about quite a bit, actually, um, is this story, I think, more so more than any other in season seven, and maybe more than any other in the whole Pertwee era, is a kind of a critique of the militarism that is always sort of circling around the idea of the unit format. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, this is personified in in the character of Baker who is, uh, as I say, is kind of... is um, very aggressive towards the the Silurians, is kind of paranoid about them. In fact, it's him shooting at uh, one down in the caves in, I think it's episode two, that sort of causes a lot of the problems that the episode, the story then revolves around. It's the, it, That's the one that then escapes, that kills Dr. Quinn and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and also some farmer guy. <laughs> the... Um, the Doctor then is active, like, more so than usual, is actively critical of the kind of military minds, obviously of Baker, but even of the Brigadier to an extent, mm. uh, the kind of military mindset that they both have and um, throughout this story. This is p- potentially the most antagonistic that the Doctor and the Brigadier ever really are, unless you count the parallel universe in Inferno, I guess. Mm. So I think some of that is, and this is a case that has been made before, and certainly on uh, *Tardis* *Sarah as well as other places. But, and um, some of that is Malcolm Hulk specifically critiquing the new, uh, the new kind of format. But also, I think it's kind of a critique that needed to be made,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's interesting the series gets it out of the way very quickly, actually, uh, like the second episode of this new format, uh, and. It's I mean, Spearhead barely even had the new format. So uh, it's interesting that it kind of contains within itself its own critique so quickly. The brigadier.
1: He's blown up a Silurian base.
2: He must have had orders from the Ministry. But you knew? No. The government were frightened. They just couldn't take the risk.
0: And obviously the ultimate expression of that is the ending.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, which as we've talked about before is problematic uh, in for the kind of structure of the series um, because it's kind of hard to see because the, the Doctor is explicit about the fact that he frames what the Brigadier did as genocide mm-hmm. and for all that it's mentioned briefly in Ambassadors of Death it's never mentioned again yeah. which mm-hmm. is really strange on the face of it
1: I think... Yeah, I, I think it's a shame really that they that they didn't do more with it because I think sometimes leaning into these bold decisions can be quite good. Yeah. Um, I mean equally then I don't know if it would have left too much of a shadow on the remaining stories of the series, mm-hmm. which is why I think it would have fed quite well into Inferno, but not necessarily into Ambassadors of Death, which is a bit lighter in tone. It certainly yeah. like feels like that if you mm. think of it from the end of the Silurians onwards. Mm. I think, yeah. I mean, I think the ending of the Silurians is really interesting and really works. It's just a shame that it doesn't fit in a little bit better to the stories around it.
0: Yeah, it's certainly a bold choice, and actually, I think that's that's worth expanding on a little bit. Um, the 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 idea that you you talked about last time we recorded this, that Silurians and ambassadors might be better sw- swapped yeah. around. Yeah, you know, well, I,
1: I, I think I just sort of, in talking through it, came to the realisation that um, if ambassadors came before the Silurians, there would be room to have more of an escalation um, in terms of the relationship between the Doctor and the Brigadier and the Doctor and unit. Which is then kind of taken another step further in Inferno where we see where the um, extremes of the attitude demonstrated in Silurians can lead to. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they chose to have it the way they did. I'm assuming that there must have been obviously some sort Mm. of logic behind it. Maybe they wanted, um, they didn't want two stories about drilling into the earth, like one after another, which Mm. I would understand. (laughs) Mm. But... I I just think that from a story perspective, that might have that might have resolved some of the issues that we detect in how the ending of the Silurians is handled. Mm. Because yeah, it makes ambassadors feel like a bit of a strange interlude when actually it's also a very good story. <laughs>
0: yeah, mm. yeah, I, I I I think you're right. I think that that is a really interesting point. I I really would have liked to see that escalation. I think it would have. Um, it would have benefited both the Silurians and Inferno, which both kind of work fine without it, but, like, would have both been thematically, I think, really strengthened by it. Mm. And it is kind of a... uh, It's a a failing of a lot of the classic series, it has to be said, that there's not a huge amount of that very direct continuity Mm. between stories. Mm. And, like, I, I mean, I say it's a failing. It's... I mean, it is. But um, I think it's something that's a lot more apparent to us mm-hmm. because we're so used to the idea of serialised narratives having that kind of yeah. through flow, yeah, yeah. which wouldn't so much mm-hmm. have been the case, certainly with something like Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think of the... The obvious place to look for uh, a comparison, really, is Star Trek. Um, because the original series of Star Trek is very episodic. It's very kind of this week we're doing this thing, this week we're doing that thing, this week we're on this planet, this week we're on that planet, uh, in the way that Classic Who and even you who broadly tend to be. And even when it comes back in at the end of the 80s, the next generation does something like that. But then you get into Deep Space Nine, to a lesser extent Voyager, and Discovery now, which are very, which are more kind of um, like narratives relying on arcs th- running through episodes. And so it is just a change, a change in how TV is made, I think. But at the same time, um, yeah, it it is hard to see. And this can be overstated as well, because we have to remember that the way these episodes air, uh, it's not like you have the Silurians and then you have Ambassadors and then you have Inferno. You have... Episode seven of the Silurians, then Episode one of Ambassadors, then Episode two of Ambassadors, and so forth. So um, it's that it's twenty five minutes a week. It's not like a block of episodes Mm. and then another block of episodes, Mm. which is the way we consume it now. So it's kind of harder to to think about it that way.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Did people have like video recorders when this was airing? They didn't. No, they
0: they wouldn't. No, video recorders wouldn't have been a thing until the eighties.
1: I find it so stressful to think about, but then at the same time, that must have... Yeah. It's it's crazy to imagine how people would have consumed television in this way to me, because if you miss one of the parts of the story, yeah, yeah, then... Yeah, I know.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, another, uh... another interesting thing about that as well is that... Um, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but I believe... When the episodes are, were recorded in the Radio Times, they didn't actually say, you know, now it's a one of two. Yeah. Didn't actually say how many episodes it was. Oh, right. So s- sometimes you will have like, you'll notice there are stories where it looks like the story is concluded. And then you come out next week and it's still, I don't know, Dave mm. the Daleks or something, you know. Yeah. Um, ah. Which is very strange. I'm sure I heard that. I can't remember where it was. It was on a documentary. I don't know which one. But yeah.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And that's something that I think um, becomes more the case later on where six-parters in particular get kind of split up into different stories. So like, uh, there was a thing that Holmes um, liked to do when he was script editor uh, where six-parters became like a two-parter and a four-parter. So like Seeds of Doom is probably the best example. Yeah.
1: That's murder. They were intelligent alien beings. A race of them Please just wipe them out
0: that is the end of part one of our look at season seven Um, thanks for listening and join us next time where we'll be looking at ambassadors of death we'll be looking at inferno and then we will be ranking the season as a whole, ranking the episodes against each other, so please join us for that, And um, until then I've been Kiron.
1: I have been Bethan,
0: I've been Jacob and thank you for listening, I'll see you soon Oh, oh,